This episode of Intelligent Medicine is brought to you by Banatrol. If you suffer from diarrhea caused by IBS or any other type of digestive issue that's preventing you from leaving your house due to the fear of flare-ups, check out Banatrol from Medtrition. Banatrol stops diarrhea without causing constipation and is safe to take every day. Unlike over-the-counter and prescription medications would cause constipation and disrupt digestive health, Banatrol takes a nutritional approach. The all-natural formula contains only two ingredients, a proprietary blend of dehydrated banana flakes paired with a clinically proven GOS prebiotic fiber. After prescribing Banatrol to some of my patients with IBS associated with GI urgency and diarrhea, several have pronounced it a godsend. You can try Banatrol risk-free for 30 days by going to trybanatrol.com. If for any reason it doesn't work, you'll receive a 100% refund of the purchase price. That's T-R-Y-B-A-N-A-T-R-O-L.com. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. This is the time of the week that I enjoy a lot because we get your questions and I get an opportunity to have great conversation with our nutritionist in residence, Layla Mutin. And um, it's always uh, a pleasure. Uh, we're back from Memorial Day. Hope you had a nice Memorial Day, everybody. Did you, Layla? Oh, it rained. It rained. Yes. Yeah. So My Memorial Day weekend, it rained. It was. <laughs> it was probably the worst weather Memorial Day of it. I know. We had to turn the heat back on and everything. Yeah, it was a little it was ridiculous. Chilly. Yeah. But uh, I, you know, I, I decided that I was going to, you know, go forward unfazed. So one day I took a bike ride, and the other day I took a run in the, you know, kind of in the drizzle. In the drizzle. Uh, there was like uh, a little, you know, remit during the rain. During the rain, it was, yeah. the wind was always blowing. It was cloudy and cold, but there was sometimes when there yeah. wasn't pouring. So I, I, I found a, like a little uh, respite from the rain. I took a run, and then yeah. uh, another day, I actually uh, went swimming mm. in the in Long in uh, not Long Island Sound in uh, Shinnecock Bay. That had to be uh, cold. It was cold. It was cold. It was, I, I could withstand it for about a half an hour. And then I just like came out and Half hour is pretty good. Got in a hot shower. Um, half hour is pretty good. And then, you know, on that final day where it was sort of rainy, drizzly, I took another bike ride. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway. Um, okay. Start, let's start by talking about, before we get to questions, by the way, radio program at AOL.com is destination for questions. We have plenty of questions. But I wanted to discuss something that really kind of fascinated me. Uh, which is an article uh, entitled May 25th, 2021, just out, mm. in Journal of the American Medical Association. So it's not like a you know slouch journal. Uh, association between bitter taste receptor phenotype and clinical outcomes among patients with COVID-19. And what they found is that um, bitter taste... Uh, was associated, well, let's discuss bitter taste, okay? Yes. So bitter taste is either an intensification of the experience of bitterness, yeah. which leads people to food aversions. Yeah. Um, Those people might be a little more finicky, right. if we could use that term. Right. So we actually, there's a lot of literature on, on uh, that. And what this is the first time that there's been a relationship pointed out to COVID. Um, what they... The previous literature suggests that uh, people vary genetically in their yeah. 
yuck factor to things that are bitter. Now, yes. let's get some examples. Coffee is bitter. Um, you know, uh, bitter greens, bitter greens, dandelion root. You know, yeah. and there there's some kids and adults who you absolutely cannot convince mm-hmm. to have this. And you might say, well, these are bad kids or willful kids or you know, mm-hmm. mentally finicky kids. But actually, they have a highly sensitive palate to bitter tastes. Yes, and as you know, there's adaptive value in that because bitter in nature is associated with the potential for alkaloid poisoning. Yes, uh, so. We find that bitter taste is accentuated during pregnancy. Yes. Women's taste changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, children like have more... Natural self-protection. Children are, have more aversion to bitter taste than adults. Yes, especially babies. Right. It could be why breast milk is supposedly sweet. Yeah. That's something. And mm-hmm. uh, so, so they've done some studies that suggest that it's, it's not that healthy to have to be a strong bitter taster because if you are you won't eat your greens number right. one and you may also look for sort of comfort food mushy I feel like uh, uh, mac and cheese you know things right. that are bland bland yeah and or sweet because sweet will camouflage the taste of bitter right it'll so to take it away put a little maple syrup on those uh, you know on those on uh, your broccoli rob. greens or on the broccoli <laughs> rob right that's a good example of a bitter food <laughs> right 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 yeah, you know so <laughs> Okay, so so right there, there's actually, and I looked this up, there are some studies that suggest, as you mentioned, yeah. that there is an association between BMI and bitter tasting. Mm. And in other words, the more you are a bitter taster, the more finicky you are about food, and you might end up eating more, shall we say, caloric pal- palatable food. Sure. Or too many carbs. There, there's a they're gene, starchy. There's yeah. a gene that's involved with this. It's called T2R38. And so you can actually... First of all, I mean, they actually, in this study, they did a taste, they did a, they used a bitter taste test. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there are test kits that are available for this. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is actually a proprietary thing uh, from a company that will make the test. And they're, of course, interested in the research because of the implications for COVID. Uh, What they found is that uh, they actually have a nice chart here, if I can find it. Uh, a graphic which shows mm-hmm. that people who have, um, you know, who are receptive to bitter tastes, in other words, they're not that bitter sensitive, have more minor symptoms. Interesting. And there's a continuum. People with moderate bitter sensitivity have worse symptoms, and people who are very, very sensitive to bitter uh, have much more likelihood of uh, getting uh, serious COVID. You know, this just reminded me of an old, uh, it was, it had to be biology lab back in undergrad mm-hmm. uh, college, where we had a particular lab that addressed this. Yeah. Who are the bitter tasters? And they had us taste something. I think it was some kind of cucumber. Oh, okay. And some of them, you could see people wincing, tasting them. These were the bitter tasters. Yeah. I apparently am not a bitter taster. Lucky for you. Yeah. So even as a kid, you know, my whatever mom put in front of me, I would eat. Mm-hmm. I wasn't finicky at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, or anything like that. But that was very interesting to me. Yeah. So it's like having the attached or non-attached earlobes. Right. Or the ability to roll your tongue or the, yes. the ability to, to smell asparagus in your pee. Oh, yeah. yeah. That is actually genetically determined. Wow. Yeah. I can smell it. Yeah. Most but people can. But some people can. can't? Some people can't. can. That's interesting. Yeah. All right. All right. That's very interesting. But I like asparagus. It's good for us. 
Right. The research and, here's mm-hmm. just a summary of one of the articles. The research findings reviewed in this article suggest that the innate preference for sweets and rejection of bitters in humans are a consequence of evolutionary selection favoring consumption of high-energy, vitamin-rich mother milk and fruits and avoidance of bitter, poisonous plants. Ah, yes. Yeah. So that's the way nature takes care of defending yourself against toxins right. and poisons. So yeah. interesting riff on that it, it determines one. Okay, so how does it determine COVID? Yeah. Two, two ways. I think one is the, maybe the people have more of a BMI. They more, have more comorbidities because they're, you're fatter. Sure. But it's also, they say there's a direct effect on how the virus expresses itself in your olfactory tissue based on affinity of the virus for binding when you have this TR, whatever it is. That's so um, interesting. Yeah. So it's impacting the olfactory. The Ver- olfactory yeah. mucosa. Yeah. yeah. I mean, right. Wow. Yeah, the nasal Which mucosa. determines 75% of our taste. Right. Is our smell, our ability to smell. But it also is the entry point for the virus. I see. It's via the nasal passages. Wow. So that there's dual, double trouble. You know, double you might trouble. be you know, someone who... If uh, you're a bitter taster, watch out. If you're a strong bitter taster, watch out. Strong bitter yep. taster, yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's All right, interesting. Let's, let's get to some questions. Radio program yeah. at AOL.com is the destination for questions. I see people have been busy over the long Memorial Day weekend. Yeah, Dr. Hoffman, we have actually a couple of comments Good, yeah. on your exercise article oh, okay. that you had done. Do You posted that on Facebook, right? Yeah. That was and, something you posted on Facebook. And it's in our newsletter you would yeah. get in your mailbox Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, I think. Uh, this is from, we've got one from Lisa and one from Annette. Lisa says exercise is essential indeed. One has heard of the runner's high. Exercise in any form creates a natural high. Mm-hmm. I remember that back when I was a runner. She says, I'm living proof of this. I've been at home for a few years now from the workforce. My mobility problems have kept have crept up on me. I try and keep moving as much as I can throughout the day, whether it's just walking, errands, or just simply yard work. When I do sit down, I don't stay in my chair for too long. Well, I received a Fitbit watch this past Christmas, and boy, has it made me more aware of my daily activities. It's been a slow but gradual change and one that I plan on keeping up. The old adage, when we rest, we rust. You call it an adage? Adage. Or like adagio? Yeah, or, adage. or adage. Right. The old music, adage. I say adagio. aunt, too. I don't say aunt. Wait. I say aunt. You're a musician, so you say adagio? <laughs> adagio. Yes. It's good for you. Yeah. Right. The old adage, when we rest, we rust, is profoundly true. But I do say tomato, Dr. Hoffman. Mm-hmm. I don't say tomato. Do you say Caribbean? Caribbean. That's more I say Caribbean sometimes when the mood strikes. So. Okay. <laughs> yeah. okay. So this is interesting about the Fitbit. What do you think? This is not a device I was ever interested in. Yeah. I don't want these electronics on my body. <laughs> that could be my reason. Right. I mean, look, it, it yeah. depends on the kind of person you are. There's some people who want everything measured. They have now these sleep things that yes. tell you about deep sleep, you know, or, or, or not so satisfying sleep. But they, you know, they tell you what the, now the... Uh, a couple of patients of, patients of ours couldn't show us enough about the data and how interesting it yeah. is. Yes. So, so that's interesting. Actually, I, I'm, I'm just looking it up now. Is I do recall some studies that say um, that... Uh, the these trackers don't necessarily increase uh, exercise. Mm. Uh, in fact, here's one: the motivational impact of wearing wearables. Um, so what they say is that uh, I can't even understand what they're saying here. 
Qualitative evidence suggested short-term increases in motivation through feelings of competition, guilt, and internal pressure. So it was somewhat helpful, hmm. but not a slam dunk. So okay. for some people, these things work. And for some people, like you, you know, you don't care. You're, don't care. you're self-directed and, you know, you don't need an outer I don't need uh, to, to tell me device how I'm, to tell you how, how, I'm do- how am I doing. How am I doing? Yeah. Uh, a lot, so some people uh, like to be told how they're yes. doing. Yes. You, they love that. that. And I think that's great if it's a motivator. Yeah. I'm all for it if it's motivating yeah. you. But, you know, the problem is uh, some people, you know, for example, you get a lot of feedback from these watches. Like the Apple Watch tells you if you have an arrhythmia or you can buy special dedicated devices to tell you. And there is some inaccuracy there, and it can actually trigger, you know, kind of an OCD alarm oh, cycle, you know. Okay. Like an obsessive concern. Oh, no, what's wrong with my yeah. heart? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, until they really nail the accuracy of some of these things. Yeah. But, yeah, you know, if it works for you, great. Use it. You know, it will get you to, you know, motivates you. Right, you know. right. Absolutely. We have another from uh, Annette. Annette is a DO. Aerobic exercise between 20 minutes and 7 hours controls the ventromedial hypothalamus to control appetite better than anything else. Mm -hmm. Multiple studies done on all animals prove this to be correct. It makes you eat for hunger and the right amount. I wish this was true for me because I always prefer strength training to aerobic activity Mm -hmm. because strength training doesn't make me hungry. Right. Aerobics will make me hungry. Yeah, you know... I think it could go either way. My experience is that, um, you know, I'll wake up and uh, sometimes I have to run the gauntlet because everybody's having breakfast. Uh, you know, it's like this wonderful aroma of like all this cooked food. Yeah. And I have to run the gauntlet, to, you know, to get, you know, put on my, my bicycling togs and motivate myself past the breakfast table and then get on the bike. And then I can go for like a couple hours. Oh, wow. And I notice that in the immediate aftermath of the exercise, I'm rarely hungry. But then I get hungry. You're ravenous at about an hour after you've stopped. Hungry like a wolf. Yeah. And it's almost Because that adrenaline's still been working on you with the ride. Yes. That's what what it's there for. Yes. Yes. That's why we're not hungry right after exercise. Whereas you might have been hungry when you got up in the morning, but you said, no, I'm going for my bike ride. Right. But then the the adrenaline with it. Exactly. Because it's it's maladaptive to uh, be hungry while you're running away from a saber-toothed tiger. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Mother Nature's taking care of that for you. I use that analogy fully cognizant of the fact that humans never coexisted with saber-toothed tigers. Oh, my goodness. Um, But it made for some good sci-fi movies. Mm. Mm -hmm. So thank you for those comments, Lisa and Annette. Thank you very much. Yeah. uh, I I think it's, it's... there's, it's by and large true. It can be an appetite regulator, putting you more in touch with true appetite. Mm-hmm. Because the hunger that I experience after riding 25 miles is is more realistic hunger than the hunger that I experience because I just trundled downstairs and smelled, you know, smelled the bacon. Exactly. You know, cooking, you know exactly. Which is, well, you know, here's the other thing. Just smelling the food, remember, with the pancreas will still respond to that mm-hmm. and raise your your insulin in anticipation. Yeah. So that may add to the hunger later. You know what is it it a mistake sometimes is like try to cook a pot roast overnight and you get these mm. wonderful smells and aromas. Okay. But it interferes with your sleep because you're like, you're, you're smelling this and you're like... You're talking to, about in a crock pot? In a crock in pot, a like crock a slow pot. cooker. Yeah, yeah I'm like, you're pot. not keeping your stove on overnight. No, no. Okay, it, good. <laughs> no, in a slow cooker. Yeah, yeah like slow a, cooker is fine, right. sure. You know, because yeah. and then these wonderful aromas come at you at about you know two a.m. 
And it's like, yeah. wow, I'm like dreaming of... <laughs> <laughs> dreaming of pot roast. Dreaming of pot roast. Oh, my goodness. Oh, we've got an email from Jane. Jane is suffering from hot flashes. Jane is an Asian, 60 years old female. Uh, I've learned a lot from your radio show. Thank you very much. I suffer hot flashes every 90 minutes since 2012. I eat healthy. My annual blood tests are normal, except my LDL is 143. Uh, I'm 5'2", 115 pounds. Perfect. Blood pressure is perfect. Because uh, obese women have more, I mean, overweight women have more trouble. Yeah. Yeah, they'll have more trouble. Because they can have more hormone hell. I'm uh, I'm walking 30 minutes three times a week. Uh, I've got she's got some various hormone lab numbers which we're not going to go into here. Yeah. We don't do consults on podcasts, right, right? Right. So in 2014, my gynecologist gave me hormone replacement therapy, but that didn't work too well. She gave me a different kind of patch that didn't work too well. It couldn't stop the hot flashes. I changed to natural things. I've done black cohosh, Chinese medicine. Oh. I've tried various supplements including GABA, valerian root, all of that. Is there And I've been taking 80 grams of dry soybean to make milk every day, which should help with hot flashes. I've had women come into our office and say, I've never needed HRT because I drink a glass of soy milk every day. Mm-hmm. And I used to call that unregulated HRT mm-hmm. back in the day. Because mm-hmm. so, it's a phytoestrogen, yeah, yeah. plant estrogen, yeah. Every 90 minutes since 2012, the six-year-old well, woman you know, is would, having I hot would, flashes. I would look at blood sugar. I'd certainly look at blood sugar regulation. Yeah. You know, I don't know what her diet is like. Um, you know, I would also, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I question whether all the hormone options have been used because, you know, she should be trying the bioidenticals. She said she did. Different she combinations did some hormones, of bioidenticals right. can be helpful. Yeah. So you know, she didn't say they were bioidentical, but they were definitely HRT. Yeah, I might def- I might look at other yeah. combos, you know, because that's the beauty of bioidentical is it can really customize it for yeah. patients. Uh, another you know possibility is uh, something called um, um, uh, clonidine, which is a blood pressure medication that seems to block hot flashes in extreme mm. cases. And you know another thing. I mean, they do talk about antidepressants sometimes medica- medically. I mean, you don't really want to take an antidepressant, but if it's the bane of your existence, yeah, and you know you can't control it, you might consider. And it, that doesn't mean you're crazy. It just means that no. uh, they act on the nervous system to somehow take the edge off. blunt the uh, the hypersensitivity of yeah. the system to the hormones. Um, okay, you she's know, tried I mean, acupuncture, massage. Various herbs, Chinese medicine. She's on some good supplements. I don't see anything that there that will give her a hot flesh. Yeah. Uh, Did she try the? Um, I mean, I guess she probably got around to it at something. But it's uh, Estravera by. Um, no, she Metagenics. doesn't mention Estravera. She talks about black coho. Estravera by Metagenics is. It's a, a Siberian. Uh, is this rhubarb? Siberian rhubarb. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Uh, and it works for quite a lot of women. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. it's it's actually uh, you know they say that it can reduce hot flashes by up to eighty three percent. Many of our women achieve success with that. Yeah, Estravera, it's called. Estra-vera. And it's available via um, full script, so you mm-hmm. can try that. It's generally prescribed at two yeah. capsules once a day, but you could try four. You know, since it's such a serious case, mm-hmm. and you know maybe that might work. Um, what, one last thing I would mention. 
If you're using a lot of herbs and spices in your cooking, be careful. Mm -hmm. Things like cinnamon produce heat. A lot of people are taking cinnamon in order to regulate their blood sugar, okay. not realizing it could heat them up. Mm -hmm. so, so certain herbs are very warming, and you have to kind of be careful. I'm not an expert in this area, right. but I find it fascinating. I want to do more research in, on, into it. So. Uh, the other, I mean, if you don't want to take an antidepressant, I mean, there's some some evidence that a St. John's wort can help hot mm. flashes sometimes. Mm. Um that's a that's like a natural antidepressant. Yeah. It that works on the serotonergic pathway, which may have something to do with the hot flashes. So, right, um, those are some possibilities. But this sounds like a sort of a tough case. Yeah, you need to keep your home very cool. You know, even in the winter, make sure it's quite cool. Maybe sixty-five degrees, maybe sixty degrees. But you know, as to blood sugar, uh, it's sometimes very confusing to sort out. Uh, hormonal hot flashes from hypoglycemic episodes because mm. you break into a sweat. Yeah, and you know, and if your threshold for having a hot flash is already pretty low, what can put you over is poorly controlled blood sugar. Yes, interesting. Yeah. So, so that's something that. to that's something to look at. Okay. She said she tried acupuncture too, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. Acu Yes. Which is, I mean, traditional and Chinese medicine and offers TCM. a lot in that in that mm -hmm. regard. Yeah. Wow, it's a tough case. That is a tough case. Well, Jane, we wish you all the best of who luck. Who are you going to call? You know, <clears throat> who are you going to call? Like, right in Dr. Dr. Hoffman. Hoffman. <laughs> 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 we get the tough questions. So this comes from Betsy. Betsy's all the way in Hawaii. What regarding the jab, the vaccine? Mm -hmm. What are the implications for autoimmune responses? Well, it's a big question, and you know that's why um, it's a semester's worth of podcasts. Yeah, literally. That, that's why the Alliance for Natural Health has uh, conducted a campaign, Freedom of Choice, yes. especially for people with autoimmune diseases, because they're not sure um, whether the vaccine might kindle their autoimmunity. Now, I have to say that there are the the, the uh, there's not an avalanche of cases of MS, rheumatoid arthritis, ulcerative colitis, all you know, all these conditions being exacerbated when people get the vaccine. Yeah. And I think enough people with those types of conditions have been vaccinated short term to say that this seems to be relatively safe. However, there is evidence that through molecular mimicry uh, and um, immune activation, at least hypothetically, there could be uh, some um, exacerbation of an autoimmune condition. Now, that also has to be weighed against the risk of actually getting COVID. Yeah. COVID could certainly do that, too. Huh? You know, because COVID could leave people with, uh, you know, some problems. There have been some cases of myocarditis, which is an autoimmune disease, yeah. in uh, uh, adolescents who mm -hmm. got the vaccine. And that's unfortunate because I think they're the lowest risk. Yeah. And so... And now why, they're getting myocarditis? Why get a nasty condition which, uh, you know, when it's, if you just got COVID, you might have less of a serious condition. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an, you know, one might argue, like, isn't the vaccine the same as getting COVID? There may be something, COVID is both, uh, is, is far worse than the vaccine mm -hmm. side effects in terms of leading long-term sure. sequelae. Um, but, you know, the other choice is to not get COVID. I mean, it is possible to be careful and not get COVID. 
So if you're someone who has an autoimmune disease and you're in a position where you don't have to go into, say, work at a homeless shelter or, you know, work in a crowded yeah. office or commute or, you know, travel internationally, yeah. uh, an option for you might be to wait a little while mm-hmm. and see if the data uh, continue to support the safety of the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm not anti-vaccine. I'm just saying let's... Look, there's. It's not black or white. It's not like the it's vaccine not. is completely safe. Don't worry about it. Nor is it that the you know people are dropping like flies from the vaccine. I mean, right. I think some opponents of the vaccine are trying to gin up uh, opposition. Or trying to, the to portray right as such. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it is concern warranted. Yes, mm-hmm. on a hypothetical basis. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Um, However, I mean, the official, I looked at the official position of the American Academy of Rheumatology, which deals with autoimmune conditions, and they say, go ahead. Um, Just don't have your ANA checked within three months of, of any vaccine, not are, just the COVID vaccine, but any vaccine. Are you, say, are you saying that seriously? Is yeah, it, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. This was, uh, this was at a medical conference. This was a year ago. Oh. Dr. Susan Blum. Yeah. She's in Westchester County. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She said this. She said, do not get your anti-nuclear. This is pre-COVID. An- this is pre-COVID. This yeah. is years. This yeah. is ten years ago. Yeah. So you don't get tested for autoimmunity within three months of taking any kind of a oh, vaccination. So she sort of foresaw that there could be some, yeah. you know, yeah. activation of autoimmunity. Yeah. So ANA is a common test that uh, right. denotes autoimmunity. It doesn't necessarily diagnose a disease, mm-hmm. but it tells you that you know maybe there's a potential for a disease. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is it, it is a hallmark of lupus, but not everybody with a positive ANA has lupus. Right, right. So, uh, Bet- Betty- Betsy also says, uh, a clinic in these parts, many healthcare staff have contracted COVID anyway after having been fully vaccinated. Well, that's not quite true. That's yeah. not quite true. And there's also, there's a very low likelihood of getting COVID after being vaccinated. I think it's like on a 0.01. 0.001. There's also the possibility that the testing is overly sensitive, and when people who've too had too much COVID, cycling in that in that ridiculous PCR the PCR test goes, you know, it's like, you know, if you cycle everybody over 30, 35, everybody's positive. Let's explain what we mean by cycling. In other words, it means each each time is like going through another like iteration of probing. Yeah, you know, so that it's like one is. The first cycle is very gross, and the next cycle is more precise, and more precise, and more precise, and more precise, and more precise, until you get to maybe identifying the presence of some particles that are the residual of a previous material, right? Genetic, or so there's some dead virus that you you know lodged in your nasal passages and were picked up by the swab, Mm. Um, you know. Yeah. So. Let's see. Good point at which to pause because we divide our podcast into two parts. And mm-hmm. so give us a preview of what we're going to tackle in part two. Hi, Dr. Hoffman. Apparently, I'm pre-diabetic, and I definitely have Dawn syndrome. Dawn phenomena. Samoji, yeah. Samoji phenomena. Okay, yes. we'll talk about that when we return. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is our weekly Q&A with Layla. Radio program at AOL.com, the destination for questions. We'll be right back with part two.